0: It's interesting that uh, in John's prayer, he said that we're thankful for a time of permanent peace, and I thought about that. And indeed, we do live in a time of permanent peace. Regardless of what is going on around us, we have the peace of God that passes all understanding. And that song where, can I doubt your love for me when I trace its grand design? By the cross of Calvary, I am yours and you are mine. Isn't that wonderful news? So let me open with a word of prayer as we begin again in our Genesis series. Father, whenever we feel alone or that everything is against us, you have promised you're always there. In your word, you say, the Lord will not forsake his people, He will not abandon his heritage. Father, you will never let us go, and we rest on the promise as our source of strength, just like the man who called Jacob, whose name you changed to Israel. And although we struggle as both sinners and saints, though we constantly wrestle with our dual nature, you have a love that won't let us go. Now, as we turn to you this morning, see the truth of your word, I pray that you'd bless us in the hearing and the understanding that our hope and confidence may grow and be renewed this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amazing Grace. We just sang sort of a version of that song, but it's probably the song by John Newton. It's probably the most often sung Christian song in history. It was written in 1772. Newton was a sailor and a slave trader whom God saved during a ferocious storm off the coast of Ireland in 1748. And the song that he wrote became a classic, a classic Christian song, and it is sung by Christians and countless secular people throughout the ages since uh, it was written. Those familiar words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It gives you the comfort of knowing that God's grace is just flowing over his people, drawing us gently with his amazing, peaceful grace. But grace isn't always a sweet sound and a gentle experience. Sometimes it's more like a wrestling match with God where no matter what we do, we can't get away, and he won't let us go. It was certainly that way with Jacob, as we'll see in Genesis 32, and there is much that we can learn from Jacob's story this morning. So I invite you to open your Bible to Genesis 32. We're going to look at the entire chapter, and in this message I've titled, A Love That Won't Let Go, we're going to continue to follow Jacob on the next part of his journey as God draws him back to the land that he promised to his grandfather, Abraham many years earlier now the one big idea that i want to draw out of this text this morning is on the top of your handout and it's this learning to rely fully on god is a lifelong process that is only complete when we are finally home with him a lifelong process only complete when we are home with him because self-sufficiency is baked Into our fallen hearts and even after we're saved we persist in the illusion that we can handle almost anything in our life that comes along except for the really big messes and then we turn to God don't we but what we'll see today is that God insists on teaching us that he is our first option and he'll continue that lesson until the self-sufficiency in our stubborn hearts is gone. Now, the process is anything but sweet. And as I said, it won't be complete in this life. But one day, we'll stand before the throne of grace, and we will all sing together amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that would not let a sinner like me go. And that will be a glorious day. Now, Jacob's story, we'll look at it from three angles. First, Jacob's decision to reconcile with his brother Esau. Second, his despair over Esau's response. And third, Jacob's demand for blessing from a mysterious stranger. So we have a decision, despair, and a demand, which are the features in the next part of Jacob's story. So if you're able, please stand as I read Genesis 32. I'm going to read verses one through 6 Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him and when Jacob saw them he said this is God's camp so he called the name of that place Mahanaim and Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Seir the country of Edom instructing them Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. May God bless the reading of this word. Please be seated. Now, chapter 32 dawns full of hope uh, for Jacob. He's been 20 years in the out of the promised land. He fled from his brother Esau, fleeting, fleeing for his life after cheating Esau out of his birthright and his blessing. Um, He followed his mom's advice, and he fled to Haran in northern Syria, where he settled with uh, his mother's brother, his uncle, Laban. Now, Jacob's name, as we've learned, means deceiver. And that accurately describes his character. But in Laban, he met more than a match, as Laban managed to deceive him over and over again uh, for about 20 years. Jacob's a quick study and after 20 years he'd married Laban's two daughters he'd fathered 11 children and he'd acquired servants and livestock which made him very wealthy but God's promise to Abraham to Jacob's grandfather Abram was to make from him a great nation in Canaan not in Syria so in chapter 31 verse 3 the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will bless you. Now, when Laban left, we learned last time, uh, or when Jacob left, Laban was very angry. He said it was over losing his grandchildren, but he was really angry over the fact that he was losing the opportunity to rob Jacob at every turn. So he gathered his sons and a bunch of other guys, and they pursued Jacob. And when they caught him, accusations flew back and forth. But in the end, Jacob's case was solid. He made the case that Laban had indeed not been true to his word. Laban had to admit that, and they had to form an uneasy peace, but they did sign a covenant together. So with that relationship settled, Jacob now continues on, but he knows he needs to make one other relationship right, and that's the relationship with his brother Esau. So he makes a significant detour on his way to the promised land. Not to avoid Esau, who lives southeast of the Dead Sea, as we see here, but to meet with him, to meet with him. Because Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5. He said, if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So rather than take another way to avoid Esau, um, Jacob knew, and spiritually God made it clear, that he needed to reconcile with his brother before he could enter the land of promise. The reason is, past sins can't simply be swept under the rug or forgotten, because true repentance includes reconciliation with those we have harmed if we are able to do so. As God's Word says, we are to be at peace with all people as far as it goes with us. So it would not be easy, but Jacob knew it had to be done. And then God comforted him when in verse 1 it says that the angels of God met him And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Now, we notice that from Jacob's story that both his time out of and back into the promised land are bookended by two visions of angels. When he fled from Esau, he stopped for the night at Bethel. And you remember this, in a dream he saw angels ascending and descending on a stairway between heaven and earth. And God stood alongside and he said to Jacob, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done all that I have promised. Now Jacob is returning. God has called him back. And as he does, the veil that exists between the physical and the spiritual reality is drawn back again to reveal that God is with Jacob. And the reason is he wants to teach him that the outcome of the meeting with Esau will not depend on Jacob's clever schemes or on his wits, but on the abiding presence of God. Jacob is used to always depending on his wits, but he must stop that now as he is about to return back to the land of promise. This brings us to our first fill-in. God brings difficulties into my life to teach me that he is there in every test and trial to bring me safely through. God is there in every test and trial to bring us safely through. Now, this is not some Christian platitude it's our reality. God brings difficulty into our lives because learning to trust him is a hard lesson. We can't believe that somehow we're not in charge of everything that happens in our lives. And Because of our modern worldview, even the Christian worldview, we seldom realize that there is both our physical reality and the greater spiritual reality that means God's presence is with us continually. We think we're in charge, we're in charge, we can't see the full scope of reality, so turning to God is often our last resort when things get really bad. But God wants to be your first resort. He wants you to turn to him because he brings every trial and has promised to bring you safely through. Jacob's about to learn that lesson as his faith, faith is now being put to the test. It continues, he sends men ahead to Esau with gifts, And a carefully crafted message of repentance. Look with me at verse 4. Thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I've sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. Now, these words. Lord, servant, favor. They're meant to tell Esau that it's Jacob's sincere hope to be reconciled to his older brother. But the messengers return with bad news, don't they? We came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you all right. And there are 400 men with him. Now, Esau and 400 men doesn't sound like a welcoming party. So put yourself in Jacob's shoes. Here he is. He's trying to do the right thing. He thinks to himself, how did this go so wrong? I'm doing the right thing. Why didn't I just leave it all alone? I could have gone another way. Why did I have to stir up this nest of hornets? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that way when you're trying to do the right thing? Well, an important question to ask at that moment is your motivation. Am I doing the right thing to ease my guilty conscience? Am I doing the right thing to make me look better? Or am I doing the right thing because that's what God's word tells me to do? In November 1979, during the presidency of Jimmy Carter, 52 Americans were taken hostage in the American embassy in Tehran, Iran. A diplomatic standoff began that would last for 444 days and ultimately result in Carter losing the presidency to Ronald Reagan. Now, during the eight weeks between Carter's loss and Reagan's inauguration, President Carter continued to work for the release of the hostage and in the 72 hours before Reagan was sworn in, Carter led nonstop negotiations without sleep until just minutes after Reagan took the oath of office, the hostages were finally released. Not because Reagan was inaugurated, but because Jimmy Carter persisted in doing the right thing. He had no He politically had nothing to gain, but as a confessed Christian, he would not stop in his efforts to do what was right because it was pleasing to God. To see those families in that reunion was pleasing to God and pleasing to the American people. So if your motivation is to please God, then he will be with you throughout the difficulties to make things move along and give you the strength to continue your efforts. And that's what we see with Jacob. Knowing that reconciliation with Esau is the right thing to do, it brings a major change in his life and in his attitude in how he responds to problems. He's beginning to learn that self-reliance and clever strategies may not be enough. And in verses 9 through 12, for the first time in Scripture, Jacob prays. He begins by acknowledging God's faithfulness to his promises made at Bethel. When he said, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. Next, Jacob recognizes his unworthiness. Look at verse 10. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness you have shown your servant. And then he summarizes all of the things that God has done for him, saying that for with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Jacob is standing just east of the Jordan River, across from Canaan, And here he recognizes that God has been faithful ever since that first appearance of God at Bethel. He's been faithful, and Jacob gives thanks, not for protecting him, but for the incredible gift of family, flocks, and fellowship, literally two camps now of blessings that God has given him. Then he reveals uh, his worry. He makes supplication. So we've seen sort of the acts formula: adoration, thanks, uh, ac uh, confession, thanksgiving, and and supplication. So he's made adoration. God, you've been with me as you promised all this time. He makes confession. I'm not worthy of any of this. Then gives thanksgiving, but you have given it all to me. I only cross the Jordan with my staff, and now look at all I have. And then finally he makes supplication. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers of the children. And then Jacob reminds God of his promise. You said, I will surely do you good And make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for the multitude. It's a powerful prayer of confession and trust. But what stands out most when we consider this is that on the same day that Jacob calls Esau his Lord, on the same day that Jacob says he is the servant of Esau, for the first time he says he is God's servant as well. You see, Jacob has come to see that only by becoming smaller does one grow larger or greater in the kingdom of God. Jesus put it this way. If anyone would be first, he must be the last of all and a servant of all. That brings us to another fill-in. It's a good one that we should internalize. God's gifts are given to the humble, they cannot be grasped by the proud. They're given to the humble, they can't be grasped by the proud. Humility is a mark of godliness. Humility is defined as the reversal of all human ideas of greatness and rank, and that reversal must take place in us if we are to grow in God's kingdom. You know, pride takes many forms, but the ultimate end of all pride is self-glorification. But glorification is what only God is worthy of, which is why God hates pride. The proud person seeks to glorify himself and not God, and that deprives God of the thing that only he is worthy to receive. So on this night of despair, Jacob came to realize that all he had was from God and his only hope is in God who has promised, surely I will do you good. So consider what God has promised to you. All of this thanksgiving and praise that we have as Americans. These are all gifts that God has given to us. But the one promise I return to again and again is this one from Jesus in John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. How much does the Father love his eternal Son? It cannot be measured. It is infinite. It is eternal. And knowing that Jesus loves me infinitely and eternally in spite of who I know I am is truly humbling. I'm grateful to be his servant. And when I forget, which I often do, he sends me reminders. And sometimes they're painful. So how about you? Are you grateful? Are you grateful? The Apostle Paul says it's our only reasonable act of worship. So Jacob's learning. But as I said, self-sufficiency runs deep in us. And that illusion is about to evaporate for Jacob as we look at his demand. His demand. Now, the answer to his prayer, heartfelt prayer, comes in a strange way. He's done everything he can possibly do to grease the skids to meet Esau. He sends 580 total animals in three waves, each wave preceded by a servant who will say this. They belong to your servant Jacob. They are presents sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. So here comes the first one. With about 300 animals. That's what the servant says. Here comes the second wave. More animals. servant says the same thing. Here comes the third wave. More animals. Another servant saying the same thing. And in this way, Jacob hopes to overwhelm his brother. So as verse 20 says, when I see his face, perhaps he will accept me. How could he not? But before Jacob can meet Esau, he must meet with God. Now, after sending this gift ahead, Jacob takes his family, and he splits them into two camps. He takes his family across the creek, and he goes off by himself, a small creek called the Jabbok, and it feeds into the Jordan, and he's left alone until he wasn't. Listen to this as I read verse 24 and follow. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And He said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel uh, limping because of his hip. and Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the, of the, of the thigh. Verses 24 through 32. What a strange encounter. It's dark. Jacob is all alone. And he's despairing. He's wondering what will happen the next day with his brother and 400 men coming. And then all of a sudden, boom! Some guy comes out of the dark, knocks him to the ground, begins wrestling with him, and a fight ensues that Jacob can't seem to prevail, but he certainly can't lose either. So the fight continues on. It's like one of those cartoons where the dust is flying. And the man delivers finally a powerful blow. dislocates Jacob's hip. That gives Jacob the first hint that this is not an ordinary man. As the fight continues, he realizes he's struggling with God, and he later, later names that place Penuel, meaning I have struggled with God, seen the face of God. Now, this seems odd. How can God not defeat Jacob? Well, by taking the form of a man, God is choosing to confine himself to human physical limits until the very end of the fight when he knocks Jacob's hip out of joint. And then he demands that Jacob release him, but Jacob says no, and he demands a blessing. That's an admission that Jacob recognizes that the adversary is his superior. First, the man asks Jacob his name. Now, Certainly, he must know Jacob's name. He's God. But he asked Jacob his name so that Jacob would have to say, I am a deceiver. That's what his name means. I am Jacob. It makes Jacob admit he's led a life of deception and that he's afraid of his brother because he cheated his brother. And then Jacob says, Please tell me your name. The man says, Basically, Jacob, you don't know who I am? So as the new day dawns, God blesses Jacob. Look at verse 28. Then the stranger said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. What a wonderful change to Jacob, isn't it? Suddenly he's a new creation. His new name reflects the change that God was making to his character, turning him from striving deceitfully in his own strength to striving for God's blessing. As a deceiver, he can't enter the promised land, so God had to change him. As Israel, he can enter the land and receive it as a gift along with the other blessings from God. Now, this isn't the first time God has changed someone's name. He changed Abram's name to Abraham, the father of multitudes. He changed Sarai's name to Sarah to reflect her status as the one who would continue the, the, the line of the promised son. But Jacob, he doesn't say Jacobite or Jacob something else. He changes his name completely. It's made up of two root words, El, meaning God, and Sarah, meaning struggles, to reflect Jacob's perseverance in struggling with both men and with God to receive blessing. But this new name, Israel, will be used in parallel throughout the rest of Scripture, alternating with Jacob, to reflect the fact that Jacob's nature is not all the way changed. He is still going to fall back into his deceitful ways. He will continue to live in a tension that Martin Luther called "simul justus et peccator," which means simultaneous justified and sinner, because the process of sanctification in this life is never complete. We wear our Christian faces, especially on Sunday. But I have a friend I was talking to last weekend, a friend that I consider to be a very godly man. And as we uh, talked for some period of time he suddenly got kind of sad and he said, you know I just don't feel like I really get it. I'm just not making any progress in my sanctification. And we all feel that way because it seems like it's two steps forward, and then a day later, it's three steps backward. But we must never forget that sanctification is a process, but justification is our position, and our position never changes, which is why Luther said, we are simultaneously justified, yet sinners. That brings us to then our last fill-in. As justified sinners, we will struggle with pride and self-sufficiency until we are complete in glory. We will continue to struggle with our old self until we are complete in glory. Jacob was given his new name not because of his clever schemes, but because he wrestled with God and did not give up until he received the blessing. He survived by grace alone. It's always grace, but not always the kind of grace that we expect or would want. Because Jacob received grace by enduring the struggle, but it left him crippled as a painful reminder. And his descendants then would always remember this by abstaining from eating the sinew that attached the hip socket uh, and the leg of an animal. But the reminder, uh, while it encouraged the people of Israel for many generations, the greater encouragement comes when we connect Jacob's story to the cross. And find hope in our struggles. Jesus endured the greatest wrestling with God so that his Father's grace and blessing could flow out to all of God's people. We know that in Jesus' earthly ministry, he wrestled and he prevailed with many human adversaries, but then he faced the ultimate struggle. He wrestled with God. On our behalf. And the night he was betrayed, he wrestled in Gethsemane, crying out, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And the struggle continued on the cross when, in that awful, nearing the last moment, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the result for Jesus was not a dislocated hip. It was the agony of the cross and the crushing weight of our sin. But he clung to God. He would not let go until he received the blessing, not for himself, but for us. He would not quit until he prevailed over sin and death and received a new name, a name that is above all, all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of the Father. We remember this struggle and blessing each time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Jacob's struggle was a shadow of the final struggle where Jesus won our blessing. The ancient Israelites not eating the the, uh, sinew of the hip was one of the shadows of the greater reminder of our celebration of communion, our connection to Christ, because he is the true Israel, and all who put their faith in him are united with him in his struggles and receive his victory. Amazing grace, how sweet is that sound? Jesus struggled on the cross not so we won't have to. He struggled so our struggles can be fruitful as they result in our being conformed to the image of Christ. That's what sanctification is all about. We're conformed through humility and kindness and courage and trust as we pray and serve in his eternal kingdom. Jesus promised to be with us always until the end of the age because he loves us with a love that simply will not let us go. And that, loved ones, is amazing grace. Let's pray. Father, we struggle to put to death our old nature because to die to self is painful. But through letting go of our old nature, your amazing grace flows into our hearts and then out into our lives where we can glorify you. We glorify you as we love and we serve others. So help us to remember your promises of a love that won't let go, to encourage us as we live now, knowing of a beautiful eternity that awaits us when we are home with you. Father, until that day, we will lift your name in glory and and thank you for your amazing grace. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Don, and would you stand as we close?